Episode 11, Truth and Competency. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to the events of January 6th, 2021 in Washington, D.C., the ongoing criminal investigations, the ongoing judicial and other processes involved. I'm Scott Kuhn. It's been an eventful couple of weeks in the Capitol Insurrection investigation. Most notably, the House Select Committee on the January 6th attack held its first public hearing, with testimony from four officers who helped to fight the Trumpist mob at the Capitol Insurrection. I'm not going to do much in the way of a recap of the testimony here, but I would like to focus on what some of the unique problems that the apologists and unindicted co-conspirators have run into in attempting to frame the debate around the Capitol insurrection in the light of the work of the committee. Much of the work so far has been through the judicial process, but there are still hundreds of cases with complex sets of facts, and so the sheer size and scope of it, it's difficult to instill into a clear narrative. Some of the people most interested in shifting public opinion on the Capitol insurrection have been hard at work at promulgating a disinformation campaign. And so I'll look at their latest efforts, including one stunt four members of the House of Representatives pulled at the D.C. jail. Next, I'll examine the issues of competency and sanity in the federal court system, which is occasioned by the fact that several defendants will be undergoing competency evaluations, including Jacob Chansley, the self-styled QAnon shaman. I'm going to be careful in doing this, as this is a rather specialized legal subject that even attorneys in the federal system sometimes get wrong. The spoiler alert here is that competency is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. At the first hearing of the House Select Committee on the January 6th attack, committee members heard sworn testimony from Sergeant Aquilino Gonell of the U.S. Capitol Police, PFC Harry Dunn of the U.S. Capitol Police, Officer Michael Fanone of the D.C. Metropolitan Police, and Officer Daniel Hodges of the D.C. Metropolitan Police. The officers delivered powerful testimony regarding the violence of the mob and their experiences of it. Officer Dunn recounted the use of racial slurs by the crowd and probably had the most memorable line of the testimony when he said that if someone hires a hitman to commit a murder, both the hitman and the client go to jail for the crime. If you've been listening since episode one, you'll recall that I've been skeptical of the prospect of a commission from the very beginning, at least with regard to the task of informing the public. Even the Warren Commission didn't settle the question of the assassination of JFK, after all. Commission reports are these huge tomes, and the people who probably ought to read them don't bother to do it. The Select Committee is effectively the same as a commission, uh, except that many more Republicans are going to be skeptical regarding the findings of the committee, because it was basically the only alternative that Pelosi was left with when the Senate shot down the idea of an independent commission, after Mitch McConnell reportedly asked Republican senators to vote against their proposal as a personal favor to him. Now, President Biden could appoint his own independent commission. In fact, the Warren Commission was itself a presidential commission, but all signs are that the uh, select committee is going to be the way the process is going to move forward. The legislative branch is guarding its own prerogatives. This was an attack well, by the occupant of the executive branch indirectly on the legislative branch 
And so it makes sense that Congress would want to exercise that prerogative. Um, and perhaps there are other political reasons as well, but Pelosi has publicly poo-pooed the idea of a independent presidential commission. And so uh, what we are left with is the select committee. Now, again, I'm rather skeptical of the idea that much in the way of public opinion is going to change. Many of the folks who are uh, on the far right certainly aren't going to be moved by anything that happens uh, in, in the House. Um, but nonetheless, you know, if any testimony were going to move the needle on public opinion, then it would be the testimony of these four officers, which was very compelling. I urge you to read it or listen. Sadly, that appears not to be the case. According to a poll conducted by Morning Consult in the wake of the testimony, the number of Republicans who blame Trump for the insurrection has remained stable at roughly 30%, and 22% more Democratic respondents reported watching at least some of the testimony than Republicans. So Democrats, independents, probably going to be more likely to watch it. Republicans are tuning out and doing something else. Now, it's very curious that some of the very same people who claim to support the police in other contexts have been very dismissive of the sworn testimony of these four officers, even going so far as to launch ad hominem attacks and even more bizarre conspiracy theories. Nancy Pelosi could do everything she can to promote the truth, and Democrats have been putting out ads to promote the work of the committee, but it's not going to go anywhere if it's just preaching to the converted. And the response of Republican political elites has been rather alarming. In the immediate aftermath of the Capitol insurrection, we saw members such as Graham and McConnell condemn the insurrection unequivocally. But now we're seeing, well, just nonsense. Uh, you have members such as Kevin McCarthy, a minority leader in the House, who was more upset about not getting his picks on the committee than about the insurrection itself. And then there are the outright lies, falsehoods, and disinformation campaigns. Even before the Capitol insurrection on January 6th, the insurrectionists who were planning the events planned to dress as Antifa and blame it on Antifa and BLM. And in fact, if you, on the internet, there's still some of that going on. Now, it seems that the insurrectionists are, you know, claiming that the folks, you know, <laughs> who stormed the Capitol uh, are crisis actors, or rather, I should say, the apologists for the insurrectionists are saying that the insurrectionists themselves were crisis actors, and perhaps even the FBI itself. The FBI hired the insurrectionists to conduct the insurrection, uh, is one narrative that's being circulated uh, from the usual quarters. And yet, at the very same time, certain members are attempting to label the insurrectionists political prisoners, and they're decrying the conditions at the D.C. jail. Uh, we saw some of that, I mentioned it in episode 10, and that's ongoing. So, polemically, for people who support electoral democracy, I think the best strategy for now is to keep the focus on the ongoing investigations at the Department of Justice and on the judicial process, rather than so much in the committee. Uh, the strategy of the Trumpists is, is not today what it always has been, to sow disinformation, to create an atmosphere of informational chaos, and I think the underlying problem 
that they have now is that they've spread so much disinformation that they've begun to contradict themselves. On the one hand, it's been put forward that the insurrectionists were crisis actors, or they were the FBI, or they were Antifa, or they were BLM. But on the other hand, you have uh, members of the House who are claiming that these are brave patriots who are being deprived of their basic human decency by the conditions at the D.C. jail. This contradiction was brought out in a very stark way this past week when Trumpist representatives Gates, Gomert, Green, all visited the D.C. jail, and they demanded to be let inside. Um, the obvious question here is why they care, right? If they were, you know, in on the insurrection, uh, that's one reason why they might care, right? But presumably, you know, they're trying to distance themselves, presumably. But it does raise a question. Are you showing up because your comrades are being held at the D.C. jail? Were you, in fact, in on it? Um, certainly, you wouldn't show up if these people were Antifa. Certainly, they wouldn't be arrested if they were actually FBI agents or uh, agents provocateur hired by the FBI. The conditions at the D.C. jail are effectively, you know, they're, they're the same uh, as they've been for years. Um, so it raises a question whether or not these representatives actually care about these insurrectionist defendants uh, who are accused of assaulting law enforcement, but, but not average D.C. defendants. Um, I think the answer is probably yes, right? They care about the insurrectionists. They don't care about the average D.C. inmate. But the point is to get them to say it. None of the people who need to the most will watch the committee hearings uh, or listen to this podcast for that matter. Um, but when you're out and about in the real world or online, I'd like to suggest a three-pronged strategy to use in this current political moment. Some of it's based on social science, particularly social psychology, um, my own reading of the history of political extremism, and some of it's just things that I personally have tried and have had some measure of success with. So the three things are, first, to highlight the contradictions. Uh, again, in the, the lies that are being told at the current, current moment. Two, to emphasize the outrageousness of these lies, especially the fact that we should be morally outraged by how absurd these lies are. And they, they're just a hubris of the people who are putting them forward. And finally, thirdly, to tell stories of exit and denunciation. There are people now who've become disaffected from the Trumpist insurrectionist movement. And if you can give people a way forward, that's a good thing, rather than simply just pounding them over the head. So the first thing I've already gone through a bit, Trumpists are spewing so many lies that they've become contradictory. I think that the idea that insurrectionists are somehow simultaneously fake, but also real patriots, is the best example. The second strategy relies on social psychology. It's perfectly clear that the lies at this point are bound up with Trumpist identity. They're telling these lies because it's part of their identity. They're not lying because they really believe it, but because they have an emotional commitment to the movement. They believe that the best way forward is to continue to engage in these completely fabricated falsehoods. Now, you can turn this around. If you can just put it out there that the people who stormed the Capitol might have been misled, 
you can ask about whether or not there should be a moral outrage at the people who told the original lies. At some point, we can hopefully get to the moment in the Army McCarthy hearings where we can ask, as Joseph Welch did, have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? We're well beyond the point of rational persuasion with these people. Uh, they believe the obvious lies, or they at least pretend to, and they're being circulated in bad faith. Any effort to de-Trumpify people who still support the insurrection is going to have to be based on an appeal to moral sensibilities, far more than an appeal on facts, reason, and reasonableness. And the third thing to do is to tell stories of exit and denunciation, because it's already happening, at least among uh, some of the defendants in the Capitol insurrection itself. Uh, the Capitol insurrection defendants are among the most committed Trumpists imaginable, and yet many of them have come around or are now alienated, at least, from the most absurd claims of the movement. Um, remember, after all, you know, they've got reason for this, personal first-hand experience. Trump told them he would march with them to the Capitol, but he didn't. Uh, they may have expected, as Jacob Chansley did, that he would pardon them or perhaps help them with legal bills, and he didn't. And also, many of them, if you look at the court filings, are now expressing regret and remorse for their actions, and they're specifically claiming that they were misled. So, if they can do it, I think that other Trumpists can as well. And you can integrate all these things together. The question of bail and pardons is, is an easy one, right? If the January 6th insurrection was legitimate, why did Trump not pardon the defendants when he still could? Why has he not given them legal help? He's less loyal to these foot soldiers than the average mafia boss is to his gang, right? Mafia bosses hire attorneys for members of their gangs. Trump has let them out to have public defenders. So the basic moral sense uh, is that, you know, we haven't seen too much of this in the, in the public discourse, right? We've seen sort of Snopes kind of fact-checking, but no effort to really... Um, look into the outrageousness of the fact that, hold on, if someone is telling these bold-faced lies and uh, others are, you know, just parroting them, should not there be some moral outrage, especially directed at the fact that there are so many people who are being deceived by this, that there, there's, to a certain degree, these are vulnerable people. Um, many of them are people who, for whom this movement gives a, a sense of belonging and it gives them a social context that, you know, perhaps they might not otherwise have. And the Capitol insurrection defendants can serve as a stand-in for the Trumpist movement as a whole. They're left believing lies and having to defend him while he's playing golf at his Bedminster resort. So at the most basic level, I think what's necessary is to turn a complex story about an attempt to circumvent the electoral process through political violence into a simple moral story. I do think some of the officers' testimony was successful in that, even if the people who most needed to see it didn't watch it. But I also think it might be useful to get some of the insurrectionists, perhaps, who are you know, ones who are cooperating, make it a condition of their plea deal. Um, Congress is certainly free to subpoena them. And they, again, you know, we know that some of them have denounced their actions and they've denounced Trump. They have been left hung out to dry 
Uh, many of them are going to face consequences of their extra years. Good. Um, but this is also an opportune moment, you know, because we don't, we don't actually see uh, what's going on. You know, we don't actually hear so much. We hear, we see people like Gates and Green and Gomert trying to make this into some sort of civil rights issue that these are somehow political prisoners. But we don't actually get to hear uh, these insurrectionists saying, you know what, I was mistaken. And I believe that's important because who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to me saying that this is wrong, this is all based on fabrication? Or are you going to listen to someone who's actually had to face the consequences uh, and who actually did participate in the insurrection to say, yes, it was us, yes, we did it, and yes, we were wrong. So this is important. Why? Well, we have another big date coming up in the QAnon reinstatement timeline, August 13th. Months ago, a claim was put out there that Trump would somehow be reinstated in August. And Trump himself and his allies have done everything they can to breathe life into this ridiculous rumor, including holding fake shadow cabinet meetings at Mar-a-Lago and having various surrogates such as Mike Lindell spreading the big lie at events around the country. There's some possibility that we might actually see political violence on August 13th. But the difference is that the security apparatus uh, is actually going to be ready for it this time. The Department of Homeland Security has reportedly sent memos to other agencies alerting them to the danger of political violence on August 13th and the whole month, really. So, barring actual political violence, this is a great time to remind people that Trump was also supposed to be reinstated on March 4th and on March 20th and even on January 6th, right? Also sometime in December and also sometime in November. So as these dates are coming and going, it's like a god that failed. And it's hard to imagine that there won't be some kind of drop-off in the fervor of the people who claim that Trump is going to be reinstated. Um, remember late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey, all those apocalyptic predictions from the 70s that have just kept on going and accelerated. Um, and yet, if you, you, know, you keep track of them and you tell people... Um, they will have to, you know, somehow adjust themselves. Now, uh, whether or not they can deal with the cognitive dissonance of this, you know, I think is, is part of the problem. You know, get them to turn back to their private lives, something that makes them happy. Um, but, you know, as far as having this movement be, be a hobby, uh, it, you know, again, if you are believing this prophecy that never makes correct predictions, why would you continue to believe it, and why should we take you seriously? So, if nothing else, it's useful to point out at this point that believing in a lie is a choice. So, believing in a lie is a choice. And there's a moral component to that as well. People choose to believe in a lie, that's one thing, but you can at least tell them that that is, in fact, a choice. Obviously disproven facts. There's no reinstatement happening. They're just picking dates at random. And it's much like certain churches pick these dates for the apocalypse. And I don't know how many of them have to go by before they suddenly realize um, that it's a fraud. But if someone chooses to believe in a fraud, they should you know, absolutely be confronted with that. Okay, next we'll move on to the topic of competency in the federal criminal judicial process. Uh, the first thing you need to address is the distinction between competency 
and the insanity defense. These are two very different things, and they're often conflated in public discourse, even by people who one might imagine would understand the distinction. I don't want to cause further confusion by spending too much time on the insanity defense here, but I feel I have to do it in order to distinguish it from competency, and also because of the important legislation that was passed in 1984 um, that kind of winds up addressing both. Even though it's supposed to be about the insanity defense, many of the things that were changed in this law also affect uh, competency. So I'm going to talk a little bit about insanity, the insanity defense here first, just so that we can draw a distinction between the insanity defense and competency. But I want to be clear from the very beginning that these are two very different things. Because of various tropes in pop culture, the popularity of crime fiction, police procedural television shows, and even comic books, there are a number of misconceptions regarding the insanity defense. The most basic of which that is, is that it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Think of it as something like Arkham Asylum in Batman comics, right? That Arkham Asylum is this revolving door facility with lax security where criminally insane supervillains rotate in and out. I'll call this the, the Arkham model. Uh, the Arkham model never accurately described what the insanity defense really is or the consequences of the insanity defense in the federal or indeed even in most state systems. Um, the insanity defense is and always has been rather rare, um, but in the last 35 years, especially in the federal system, it's become even more rare. So the Arkham model was never accurate, um, but to the extent that it ever did actually have some basis in fact, all that ended in the federal court system with the passage of the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984. The Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984 was enacted largely as a response to the shooting of President Ronald Reagan by John Hinckley, who received an NGRI, not guilty by reason of insanity verdict, in his case. The main thing to realize regarding the use of the insanity defense in the post-reform era is that the bar established under the act is almost impassably high. According to the language in the act, an NGRI verdict may be applied if, quote, at the time of the commission of any acts constituting any offense, the defendant, as a result of a severe mental disease or defect, was unable to appreciate the nature and quality or the wrongfulness of his acts. Mental disease or defect does not otherwise constitute a defense. End quote. So what does this mean? Well, first thing is the mental disease or defect must be severe. Antisocial tendencies or personality disorder are insufficient. It could be true that this is some sort of temporary illness, such as a psychotic break, but this kind of severity is usually associated with a chronic mental illness, which also means that it's rare to see this kind of defense without a documented pre-existing mental health diagnosis. Without that history, a defendant is unlikely to be able to successfully use the insanity defense. Also, the illness must render the defendant incapable of appreciating, quote, the nature, quality, and wrongfulness of his acts. This is a very high bar. Now, in practical terms, this means that a defendant who destroys evidence or lies to investigators, attempts to establish an alibi, or tries to elude detection by any means whatsoever is effectively ineligible for an insanity defense because these actions show that they do understand the wrongfulness of the acts in question. 
Now, there are a few exceptions. Uh, the classic example would be a murderer who removes the head of his victim and places it on the top shelf of a closet because he believes the victim will be surprised to find his head there. But again, all these normal things that a criminal might do to cover up their crime, if you do those things, by definition, under the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984, you're probably not insane. Legally, anyway. Again, it's a high bar. Also, the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984 established that the burden of proof is on the defense, not the government. This was a change from the standard set in Davis v. U.S. in 1895. Under Davis, the government had to demonstrate that the defendant was sane beyond a reasonable doubt. Now the burden of proof is on the defense, and they have to demonstrate insanity, not beyond a reasonable doubt, but by clear and convincing evidence. This very much changes the calculus, making it much harder for defendants to use the, the insanity defense. Before, the government had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant was sane. Today, the, the defense, if they're trying to argue an insanity defense and get the NGRI verdict, must prove by clear and convincing evidence that the, the defendant did not understand the nature, quality, and wrongness of their acts. Now, another important change that was brought about by the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984 that also applies to competency is a change in the federal rules of evidence. And it, it applies to insanity defenses, competency, really any kind of case wherein, uh, you know, there's questions about the mental status of the defendant. Prior to the act, psychologists and psychiatrists could offer testimony to the court that their opinion was with regard to whether or not the defendant did or did not meet the standard under the law. Under changes to the federal rules of evidence set forth in this act, the determination is now made by the court, not by expert testimony. So mental health evaluators can now offer clinical opinions, but questions such as sanity and competency are now to be made by the court. They are legal justices, judgments informed by clinical judgments of experts. So while I'm trying to demonstrate the distinction between competency and the insanity defense, it just so happens that the laws intended, intended to change the use of the insanity defense also wound up changing the rules of evidence in cases involving questions of competency. But again, the fundamental distinction before used to be that experts would testify. Sometimes you had dueling experts. Um, and they would testify as to whether or not the defendant was sane or competent with regard to the law. Today, they don't do that. They make clinical observations uh, regarding things like psychometric testing, um, and they use those to inform the court's decision. It's ultimately a decision of the judge. Finally, on the question of the insanity defense, we have the uh, question of what happens to a defendant who actually wins an NGRI verdict. If it was a violent offense involving bodily injury, or even one involving serious property damage, the defendant must undergo a yet another evaluation, this time to ensure that they no longer meet the standard of dangerousness. Again, the burden of proof is on the defense here, who must demonstrate by a preponderance of the evidence that the offender is not dangerous. In practical terms, this means that it's entirely possible for a mentally ill NGRI defendant to receive more time than would otherwise be the case. So here, winning an NGRI verdict isn't really a victory for the defense, um, at least in terms of the, the time the defendant 
uh, would be confined, right? You don't get a sentence. You just get to be continually reevaluated. So um, could be a life sentence, in effect, right? I mean, it nearly was for Hinckley, for example. All right, so let's turn at long last to the question of competency in the federal judicial process. Unlike the insanity defense, which addresses the defendant's mental status at the time of the offense, competency evaluations pertain to a defendant's current mental status. The basic issue is whether the defendant can render adequate assistance to counsel in preparing their case. One of the most important differences between the insanity defense and competency is that the standard of evidence and burden of proof. While we've already seen that the insanity defense is extremely rare in post-reform era, competency issues arise quite frequently. This is because courts are sensitive to the need to ensure a fair trial, and convicting someone who's incapable of launching a competent legal defense isn't fair. So for this reason, courts tend to err on the side of caution when it comes to competency issues. And so the legal standard by which judges are to make referrals for competency evaluations is that they are to do so when there is, quote, more than a scintilla of evidence suggestive of incompetence. More than a scintilla of evidence suggestive of incompetence. That's a very low bar, right? I don't know exactly how much a scintilla is. It's not very much. Slightly more than that, still not very much. So, uh, again, this isn't the standard for someone whether or not you know, the standard for whether or not someone's actually incompetent, this is the standard for referral for a competency evaluation and competency hearing. So the rules regarding uh, competency in the federal system are found in 18 U.S.C. section 4142. The language in the law is that the defendant should be evaluated if there is reasonable cause for a competency hearing. But as I explained earlier, the standard in case law is more than a scintilla of evidence. Competency hearings can be requested by the defense or the government. And before the hearing, the defendant must undergo a competency evaluation, which is usually administered by a forensic psychologist at a Bureau of Prisons facility, but may also be contracted out to a private psychologist. Uh, either case, they then write a report that the court uses to make its own determination. Again, there's a clinical report, and then the court makes the determination with regard to competency. So as with sanity, competency is a determination made by the court relying on clinical evidence supported by expert witnesses. The question in competency evaluations is whether the defendant understands the legal proceedings and their consequences. And in the case where you have dueling experts, um, it's the court who decides which expert they're going to believe. If the court makes the determination that the defendant isn't competent, Section 4142 provides that the defendant may be detained for up to four months, during which time the Bureau of Prisons administers a competency restoration process. It's basically like a class to get the defendant to pass the competency evaluation, but it's also a bit of a disincentive for malingering defendants. If you want to act up in court, your prize is to win even more time in pretrial detention. This provides defendants with a strong incentive to do their very best on the upcoming competency evaluation. The vast majority do wind up getting a court date after completion of the competency restoration program, and the court determines that they're competent. Well, this also raises the question, what if they are never actually found competent? Well then, if they're still that kind of defendant 
who presents a danger to the community, they may very well wind up uh, incarcerated on a long-term basis, pre-trial, without ever having actually been found guilty. So there are actually a handful of people in the federal system who fit that category. Uh, the provisions for that are laid out in 18 U.S.C. 4247, if you're interested. But again, very few, you know, relatively few people are found not to be competent, and the ones who are go to a competency restoration process. Vast majority of those wind up being found competent by the court. They get a court date, or at some point, they plead out. So there's every incentive for defendants to do well on their evaluation and become competent. Sometimes defenders will malinger, and they'll fake bad, but most of them will recognize that it's actually in their interest to accept treatment and to be on their best behavior. Um, when you're dealing with medication issues, for example, some of these defendants um, legitimately may appear not to be competent. They go into the competency restoration program, they tinker with the meds, they get them on, on the right medication, and they come out the other end, and they are able to assist in their own defense. Which brings me to the question of who gets referred. I'll use an example here of one Scott Zaki, who is a federal drug defendant, um, basically sort of like party drugs, rave drugs, things like that in Detroit. And he was ordered to undergo a competency evaluation in the Eastern District of Michigan back in 2014. Uh, case number is 14-20281. All right, so he's arrested, goes through that whole process. Uh, he's got his court dates. And the first thing Zachy does is to fire his attorney. So he's on his second attorney by the time, you know, you start getting uh, documents in the paper trail. Um, that's a bit of a red flag. If you're firing your attorney, it may be the case that you've got some issues playing nicely with the legal process. So he fires his attorney. Next thing he does is he fires a whole, files off uh, a whole slew of what the judge calls numerous papers with the court. He does, she doesn't even call them motions, just files numerous papers with the court, including a motion requesting that the judge recuse herself. Now that is another red flag. If you're raising issues about the authority of the judge, you might not be able to assist in your own defense. If you don't recognize the authority of the legal process, you might be found to be in need of a competency evaluation. Zaki also requested that he be permitted to act pro se, that is to say, act as his own attorney. That winds up being another red flag. If you don't even know that a bad attorney or an attorney that you don't like is going to do a better job than you are when you're trying to defend yourself, you might not understand the legal process and you might need a competency evaluation and hearing. Also, if you're filing motions on your own behalf over the objections of your own attorney, that's another red flag, which Zaggy does. So again, he's also um, just doing everything he can at this point, even though it's not clear whether or not this is what he wants, uh, to raise all these things that, you know, for the court, is a problem. Why is it a problem? Well, because if on appeal, the defendant says, look, I wasn't competent at that point in time. I want another trial. That's a problem. That's what the court is trying to avoid. And so that's why we part of the reason why we have this competency evaluation and restoration process. Also, uh, another red flag, 
Zanke expressed some bizarre ideas in the valuation process, uh, including the claim that he was somehow selected by God to undergo his trial as a kind of, um, well, trial, much like the trials of Job, right? So, um, again, if you're declaring yourself to be divinely ordained in some manner, that, you know, might be looked upon uh, as a, perhaps a mental health issue. And finally, the defendant was also disruptive in court, right? Zaki was, you know, raving at various points, uh, being impolite and disrespectful to the judge, not a thing that they think is cool. Um, and also during the evaluation process itself, uh, Zaki prohibited his attorney from engaging in plea negotiations. Again, um, if you're restricting what your own attorney can do on your own behalf, it raises competency issues. All right. So the question is, does that meet the standard of more than a scintilla? Well, yeah. In fact, I chose this case specifically because he does almost everything you could possibly do to get a competency evaluation and hearing ordered. So he went through the process. Uh, he had multiple evaluations, dueling evaluators. Um, and yeah, at some point, uh, these defendants tire of it and they wind up accepting a plea. Uh, but again, those are the kinds of things in this one case study that you can do in court that are going to wind up having you go through the competency process and delay your court date and you wind up going through competency uh, evaluation and then a hearing and possibly restoration and then another evaluation and another hearing, etc. and so forth. So again, people might think it's a good idea from the outset. Ultimately, um, it's not a great thing for defendants to have to necessarily do. Um, and in some cases, they might, again, do more time, especially with these misdemeanor cases, uh, they might do more time in pretrial detention being evaluated than they ever would have uh, with regard to some of these sentences that they're handing out. So with many of these competency evaluations, um, you've got, you know, people with these chronic mental health conditions or perhaps a psychotic break. But then you also have a lot that uh, goes to courtroom behavior. And an example of Mr. Zaki, I think he's have just about every kind of disruptive courtroom behavior. And that's why he goes back for multiple evaluations. So also how the defendant is interacting with their own counsel outside of court, right? Um, if they're firing them, if they're filing motions, um, if they're forbidding them to do things like engaging in plea negotiations, all of which are red flags uh, in terms of this person might not be competent. So at this point, all it takes is more than a scintilla of evidence. And so the competency evaluation is ordered and the competency hearing, competency hearing is ordered. So how does this, what does this mean for the January 6th defendants? Well, here's how this plays out, right? So I, I just... From reading my case study and some other cases, I found like five different things with regard to um, the behavior of defendants, right, apart from their history, uh, that raise flags for competency. First, being disruptive in the courtroom. Second, filing motions on their own. Third, requesting to act pro se, firing their attorney. Fourth, questioning the authority of the court or the judge. And finally, five, giving voice to bizarre ideations or delusions. All right, so at the current moment, at least five defendants 
look like they're going to be undergoing competency evaluations. Two of them have definitely been ordered. The others look like they will be ordered, um, but just haven't been entered that way in the uh, on the DOJ page. Um, but according to press reports and uh, transcripts of uh, the hearings so far, um, it looks like we're dealing with at least five, possibly more, right? And again, it's understandable. You've got people who believe in these bizarre things, and they've got some bizarre behavior. Um, and the standard merely for having a, a competency evaluation and competency hearing ordered is very low, right? Standard for being found incompetent is, is a bit higher, but the standard for uh, an evaluation is extremely low. Why? They don't want to make mistakes on this. They don't want to provide defendants with a basis for an appeal. So the defendants uh, currently looking at this process are Jonathan Monafo, Landon Copeland, Pauline Bauer, Dan Goodwin, and of course, the aforementioned QAnon shaman, Jacob Chansley. Now, Chansley's case is actually a little as less in common with uh, the other four um, because the government announced that they would be entering plea negotiations as soon as the competency evaluation was ordered. That's not how it's supposed to work, right? Um, they should probably wait for the evaluation and the hearing before, you know, looking at a, a, a plea process. Um, and I, I can't even speculate as to why they would be skipping straight to uh, plea bargains. Also, Chansley, according to his attorney, Albert Watkins, who's an interesting character himself, nonetheless, Chansley has a rather unusual diagnosis. In addition to bipolar disorder, depression, and anxiety, Chansley's been diagnosed with something called transient schizophrenia. So, presumably that they're working with from his history. Um, but it's difficult to differentiate transient schizophrenia from, let's say, well, regular schizophrenia, right? But that, according to his attorney, is a diagnosis that he has been given. Um, now, there's a possibility raised in January that Chansley himself would testify against Trump uh, if he was called in his second impeachment hearing. So, um, Chansley himself was at all these different QAnon and Trump events all across the country in the run-up of the January 6th insurrection and uh, is now very much um, unhappy with his situation in pretrial detention uh, months afterward with many other more violent people, although he did carry a spear, right? For some reason, didn't catch a dangerous weapons charge. I don't know why that is. Uh, nonetheless, he, you know, is someone who's not, not particularly happy with Trump at the moment. And by the way, also uh, in his hearings and everything, uh, unlike the other four defendants we're looking at, this is all based on his history, right? Uh, and based on, you know, the, the, the request. Um, the other four defendants we're looking at have been extremely disruptive, and Chansley uh, hasn't been. So, I mean, there's a lot of interesting questions about his, his particular case. Obviously, he stands out just because he was, he was dressed oddly and behaved oddly um, and went up to the, uh, the desk of the president of the Senate, uh, the vice president. Um, but again, you know, how does an unemployed actor travel across the country to take part in all these activities, right? Um, but there's, you know, there's nothing in the charging documents indicating that there's any evidence that Chansley has to offer the government. So most parsimonious explanation is simply that both the government and the defense want to resolve this case. 
Now, like many other defendants who wound up on in the Senate chamber, he is facing the felony obstruction count, right? Obstruction of an official proceeding. And I'm sure that the government's going to want him to plead that, at least that one count. One would hope. Anyway, um, you know, possibly more. Uh, again, he was very conspicuous uh, in the Senate chamber and so somehow became you know, one of the, the um, figures, you know, leading figures of the insurrection, even though there's really no evidence to suggest that, you know, he's not Ethan Nordeen or Joe Biggs, right? Uh, he's not, you know, he's, he's not even Cressman. I mean, you can go through the list of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys who are facing these conspiracy counts. Um, you know, this is just a guy with a face paint and a spear and a, apparently some ongoing mental health issues. All right. Well, Chansley's only one of five whose competency evaluation appears to be based on, again, on his mental health history. The other four are based on di disruptive behavior. Um, in the courtroom, or rather, in these Zoom meeting hearings. So I'd like next to move to Pauline Bauer, who is apparently interested in trying the, out the sovereign citizen defense. So here's a, a transcript of a hearing that um, Ms. Bauer was in in front of Judge Faruqi last week. I'm not going to do voices or anything. I'll just say there. Pauline Bauer. Are you railroading me, Judge Faruqi? That's not how you speak to a federal judge. Pauline Bauer. I'm here by special divine appearance, a living soul. Judge Faruqi. I want to go forward. Judge Faruqi. Will you answer my questions? Pauline Bauer. Yes. Judge Faruqi. Do you want counsel? Pauline Bauer. I am here, a free living soul, a woman, and I stand by my notice a special appearance. Judge Faruqi, you have to answer yes or no. Pauline Bauer, I stand by my notice. Judge Faruqi, we tried. You have the right to counsel. Pauline Bauer, I do not want counsel. Judge Faruqi, I'm conducting a Ferretta inquiry. Pauline Bauer, I do not stand under the law. Under Genesis 1, God gave man dominion over the law. Judge Faruqi, you have a constitutional right. Pauline Bauer, I do not want counsel. Judge Faruqi, this is only going to work in person. Come to D.C. on June 18th. If you can't, file something, or I'll issue a bench warrant. Pauline Bauer, I do not consent. Judge Faruqi, you can sign off, Ms. Bauer. Pauline Bauer, I have a question. Is this public? Judge Faruqi. Yes. See you next week, 1 p.m. Pauline Bauer. And if I do not, Judge Faruqi. A bench warrant. Pauline Bauer. You took an oath to the Constitution. Voice. There is a standby counsel, Ms. Hernandez. Pauline Bauer. I do not want Mr. Hernandez. No, no, no. Judge Faruqi. I have removed Ms. Bauer from this proceeding. I appoint Ms. Hernandez as standby counsel. Are you vaccinated? Hernandez? Yes. So, um, yeah, he apparently has to wind up uh, going, uh, you know, oh, I, I forget. No. He apparently, he has the authority, right? Jackie, what's her name? 
I, I forget. But um, so Judge Faruqi has the authority. He just mutes her, kicks her out, re, uh, schedules a hearing, and um, all the red flags, you know, that I, I talked about with regard to Zachy, that sort of little case study I did. Um, she's firing her attorney, right? She wants to act pro se. She's being disruptive in her Zoom hearing. She's questioning the authority of the judge, and she's using the bizarre sovereign citizen defense, which I've touched on briefly before. Uh, but basically, it's this bizarre theory whereby um, the, the United States Constitution no longer actually exists, and because uh, we have um, the Federal Reserve, there's like all these notes and documents uh, and basically people who are sovereign citizens are flesh and blood men not corporations um and they exist on a different level and they're not subject to the laws of the, the constitution in fact they truly represent the constitution itself and it's nuts it's nuts it was invented uh was it back in the 70s or 80s uh, out west by some uh white nationalist kind of figures and it's become popular uh, you know, in different folks in both far-right politics and also in the federal prison system. Um, so Bauer is apparently one of those, or at least trying it on. So part of the if issue is that, you know, it can be difficult for judges to differentiate between people who believe things that, in layman's terms, appear to be insane and uh, defendants who have underlying mental disorders. Compounding this issue, of course, is that sometimes people who have underlying mental disorders may be attracted to this kind of extremist ideology. And I think we're going to see both of these kinds of defendants. So all in all, I don't expect that this kind of a tactic or habit or whatever you want to call it of uh, questioning the authority of the court is really going to work out for any of these defendants. With the possible exception of Chansley, they don't appear to have the mental health history that would support uh, an insanity defense. Um, Copeland, for example, uh, was someone who had been in the military um, and ha had a drug offense, uh, had been a staff sergeant, wound up uh, getting um, an other than honorable discharge uh, as a private. Um, but other than, you know, other than that, you know, claimed PTSD, I believe, but no underlying mental health history uh, and just absolutely bizarre behavior um he was not subject to pretrial detention but somehow violated the terms of his release and um they came to get him and um he uh he acted up in court and now he's going to go through the competency process so uh again i don't think it's going to work out well with him and of course good one right uh, you may have heard uh, this is the defendant who uh, chewed through a mask right uh, his attorney claims that he has autism and that he has these sensory issues and can't wear a mask. And um, again, so not surprising that some of the people who are acting out on January 6th are still acting out today. Um, but with regard to how it's going to work out for them, I think actually on the whole, um, if you go in front of the judge and start disrespecting them as these defendants are doing, you're probably going to find out that it wasn't a good idea. Um, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what, what's going to happen, right? I mean, you know, they could keep it up and risk uh, additional charges, right? So, you know, hopefully they'll listen to their own attorneys or, or you know, start behaving.
or not. I really actually don't care. It'd be interesting to see what would happen. Um, I expect if they continue in this uh, kind of behavior, they're going to have cause to regret it. So that's competency in the federal system. All right. A final note on August 4th, Carl Dresch was sentenced to time served for his offenses at the Capitol insurrection, plus $500 in restitution and a $10 fine. You might recall uh, Dresch from episode five, Grand Old Party Animals. He's the son of the late Stephen Dresch, a former Michigan State House member who played a role in the conviction of Terry Nichols, the accomplice of Timothy McVeigh in the Murrah Building bombing in Oklahoma City in 1995. Uh, Nichols had uh, gotten off relatively uh, lightly, um, but uh, it, Dresch heard from another one of his the people he was in contact with. He wasn't in prison, but uh, was doing security work and somehow uh, got in touch with uh, Nichols' old cellmate, and his cellie told him, hey, you know, this guy Nichols has got explosives buried on his farm. Dresch contacts the FBI, and um, Nichols winds up going uh, back to prison. I'm not sure if he'd been released, but I was getting a lot more time because uh, of the presence of this large amount of explosives uh, on his farm. And Dresch made national news, which is when I heard of him. And, and it, when I saw the name, the first, uh, you know, I saw that it was Michigan. I looked up and I'm like, holy mackerel. Um, there's, you can draw this direct unbroken line from the Murrah bombing uh, to today. Um, so it's all, you know, just interesting bit, tidbit of history in this long war we've been facing uh, with right-wing supremacism. It's largely been, you know, one-sided, right? The battle against uh, white supremacy and uh, far-right extremism in this country. Sometimes the, the government has just ignored it, but it hasn't gone away. And so, um, anyway, the person of Carl Dresch, uh, he actually had faced a number of counts, including the felony obstruction count, right? Uh, obstruction of an official proceeding, which can carry up to a 10-year sentence. So, um, Dresch, Carl Dresch, had been subject to pretrial detention because this is someone who had a, a previous felony conviction. Uh, he was convicted of uh, fleeing an officer, um, evading an officer, in a 146-mile-an-hour chase in his Pontiac Trans Am uh, across Michigan and Wisconsin. And he served a total of two years, of like 11 months in one state and 13 months in the other, uh, for that offense uh, committed um, nearly a decade ago. But, again, it's noteworthy to me, anyway, that he was charged with a felony and was allowed to plead to a misdemeanor. Um, the AUSAs were saying, well, he's not like a lot of the other defendants, but if that's the case, why, why was he charged with the felony to begin with? You'll remember in the last episode, episode 10, Ceilings and Floors, I expressed the hope and you know, made the bold prediction that AUSAs would hold a line. They wouldn't allow felony defendants to plead to a mis misdemeanor. Um, Dresch is the first felony defendant to be permitted to do this. And again, to me, it's all the more shocking because of the severity of his crime in 2013. Uh, this, in this chase, you know, Dresch drove several other cars off the road and he was going 146 miles an hour. Um, and yet, you know, that's not taken into account here. Yes, he wasn't at liberty, but in the end, they allowed to plead, you know, he was allowed to plead to 
misdemeanors rather than the felony that he was charged with. So apparently that this, this is a line that the AUSAs are willing to cross. They charge someone with a felony. Uh, they're perfectly willing to let them plead to a misdemeanor, even if they have a uh, felony criminal past. So if they can do that for Dresch, someone with a prior criminal history, um, you know, it, we could expect that they're going to do it for other defendants. Um, I, I, you know, generally have, have been, yes, <laughs> I, I've been a little, you know, skeptical about some of the claims that, you know, some of the so-called tourist category might be overblown. This, this defendant doesn't fit that category. And I think he's gotten the benefit of uh, sort of being lumped in. And I don't think he was overcharged. So the judge in Judge Dresch, in uh, Carl Dresch's case was Amy Berman Jackson, an Obama appointee. And she berated Dresch at the sentencing, saying, quote, your vote doesn't count more than anyone else's. You don't get to cancel them out and call for war simply because you don't like the results of the election, end quote. Now, Jackson's ability, Judge Jackson's ability to impose a harsher sentence on Dresch was limited thanks to the federal sentencing guidelines. So some media accounts have, you know, characterized this as a misdemeanor case. Well, yes, but it wasn't originally. And again, this is the first time the AUSAs have crossed that line. So um, given Dresch's criminal history, you know, I think it's hard to justify that he's allowed to plead to this misdemeanor. And so now we have a new list of defendants who were originally charged with felonies, uh, probably mainly um, obstruction, uh, who have been permitted to plead to a misdemeanor. One might hope that they wouldn't actually do this for someone uh, who's charged with assault, but apparently that's all on the table if they're going to do this for someone who, again, has a, uh, a felony conviction in their past. Now, the movement that caused the storming of the Capitol is still ongoing, and I think that there should be more concern demonstrated for the safety of the community and greater resolve to protect our democracy and to deter those people who would engage in far-right political violence. I'm not sure how dropping the, the felony obstruction card charge against Carl Dresch really does that. All right, thanks so much for listening. Please rate and subscribe and recommend the show to your friends. If you have any questions or comments, please send them via Twitter at C-A-P-I-N-S-U-R-R-E-P.